All right, guys, let me pull you back together. It is 6.31, so uh, we're going to dive in. Got some great things to cover. It's only one verse, but, uh, but a lot of good stuff here as Genesis is getting started. So uh, let me pray for us, uh, and then we'll, we'll dive into a few things. God, we love you, and we are grateful for uh, this chance to, to sit together and to sit before you and your word and, and glean what you might have to say to us. So I, I just pray over the next 30 minutes as we conclude our time this morning, God, I pray that uh, perhaps as we've studied your word and, and it's gone into our hearts to some level, Lord, you would just use uh, th- this thing you've ordained, the preaching of your word to, to drive it even deeper, Lord, to let some, some things come into focus that maybe we've missed. And, and um, Lord, as, as you are glorified before our eyes through your word, Father, you, you'd rightly put all the things in our life in order um, as a result of that. So um, guide, guide this time. Let me speak only what's true. Um, and, and may your beauty, your glory that's on display here in this passage uh, come forth. We, we pray all these things in your name. Amen. Amen. All right. Um, how did study go this week? Pretty good? Getting into the habit of uh, the notebooks. Uh, hopefully you enjoyed it. I know uh, it was unique this week because we really only had one verse in Genesis. We got 50 chapters to study this year, but uh, started with just one verse. But uh, that's very intentional. This is the first of two weeks covering uh, the, the concept of creation. Um, and uh, there's a lot of truth in the Bible about creation. So as you saw, the study sort of uh, takes one verse, but then looks all over the Bible. You were flipping a lot if you uh, were following the, the plan closely to see sort of the perspective of creation through the whole thing. Um, in future weeks, we're going to be more deeply connected with the text here in Genesis. But, uh, but yeah, just stick with it. Uh, as we talked about last week, remember that growth is slow, right? Like, uh, uh, in fact, we, we talked about Psalm 1 and, and that the man of God who is uh, treasuring God's word and longing for it and, and building his life upon it becomes like a tree planted by streams of water, bearing fruit in season. Its leaves don't wither. You know, that's what we want to be. Those, those are the kind of men we want to be spiritually, men who are, who are growing strong and have some stability to us, who are pulling up water from deep in the earth so that even when it's dry out here, we, we have some sustenance. Um, well, well, trees grow slowly, right? Like if you've cut down a tree, you know this, the, the rings on the tree, it takes a whole year to put a tiny little ring on that tree. And it takes, you know, five years before a little sapling has any sort of strength and, and 10 years before it even looks like a tree. I mean, it, growth is slow. It's the same way in our spiritual lives. The, the individual meals that you have each morning aren't going to feel like they're transforming your life. You know, the, the one time in God's word tomorrow morning, you're going to finish it and hopefully a few things will, will clear up. But you're not going to walk away and think to yourself, wow, everything changed this morning. It's very rare that everything changes in just one meal of God's word. But the habit of it, the habit of every single day not missing, the habit of that over time, the, the, the atomic power of that um, is incredible in our lives. And, and slowly but surely you will put out rings, you will uh, grow strong, you'll see fruit uh, bearing, bearing out in your life. This is totally how it happened in my life. I remember vividly in high school having a, an older guy in my life who, who mentored me through studying God's word. It's the first time I'd been a believer since I was a child, but it was the first time in my life when I began to uh, actually read God's Word daily and process it. I started journaling, uh, just some simple habits. Nothing, I, I, didn't, I hadn't been to seminary, I didn't know anything about studying the Bible yet, but I was just little by little looking to it. And I know it, it, didn't, it didn't happen instantaneously. It was like a year of doing that. But, but suddenly I began to notice that there was a difference in my heart than in my friend's heart. 
And there was something shifting in my life and in my friend's life. And it sort of put me on this path towards ministry because I began to fall in love with God and, and I could feel the distinctiveness of that in, um, amongst the people that I walked with. So um, all that to be said, you know, give yourself to this work. Be patient. Little by little, the change will come. Uh, if you're diligent with it. Um, towards that end, I, I forgot to say this last week and to give them out, but we have made these coasters for you. Uh, we got a, uh, what is that called when you burn into the wood? A, a brand. We, we got a brand with the Men of the Word logo and, and made these for you. If you've been a Men, Men of the Word before and you already have one, you know, feel free to leave them for the new guys. But uh, if you're brand new, grab that. And as you're drinking your coffee every morning, remember that you need to get in the Word. But um, uh, before we dive into the content of Genesis 1-1, I want to remind us of our themes uh, that we've been uh, tracking or, or we're going to be tracking. Does anybody remember what they were? We, we did this very quickly at the very end of last week without looking, without cheating. Uh, what were the four themes that we talked about? Anybody got them? Blessings, one of them. Yeah, that's the first one. Well done. Uh, cursing sort of fits in with blessing, the antithesis of that. So we're going we're gonna to loop that in with number one. But good job, Jim. Uh, yeah, there you go. Uh, covenant was, was one of them. That's the fourth one on this list. So I'm not going to give it away yet. But any other ones? So sin and judgment uh, is a big one that we're going to see. It'll take a little while to see that. Yes, grace and redemption is the third one, and then covenant is the fourth one. Uh, you're going to see all these. Uh, again, we just did verse number one, so we didn't see much. I did see one. Anybody uh, pick up on any of the themes in, in this first verse? For me, it was a blessing, just the concept that God would choose to create. You know, He, he uh, existed before creation, and He existed perfectly in harmony with Himself. He didn't create because He needed us. We saw that this week, I think, on day four. But, uh, you know, he, he existed in the Trinity, in eternity, by Himself, uh, with Himself, in perfect love and unity. He had no need to create us, but He chose to bless us by creating, by creating a world in which He could reveal Himself and share His goodness with a creation. So, all that being said, I do see God extending blessing in that. That'll become more clear as we go ahead, but, uh, but just a, a quick glimpse of that. But again, try to memorize these, and, and please do this too. When you're, when you're tracking through, pay attention to these words when you see them show up. Pay attention to the concepts, um, and come prepared. We'll, we'll take some time each week as we start uh, to highlight those and, and to make sure we're tracking with them. Um, in any study of any book in the Bible, if you can identify the big themes and track them, it is going to deepen your knowledge of that book. It'll get way down into your soul because you're going you're to see what the author's trying to do in, in some of the big ways. Um, and Moses is a very careful author, to be sure. All right, so uh, with that, let's go into Genesis 1-1 here. Uh, again, next week, you'll, you'll get into the bulk of the creation narrative. Uh, this week, it was just the beginning, but, but let's go ahead and, and look at what's going on uh, here in Genesis 1-1. It's just one sentence, but it's incredibly profound. Um, mountains of truth to explore uh, right as we're beginning the book here. And there's an argument to be made. This might be the most famous verse in the entire Bible. Uh, John 3.16 sort of is gets all the, the credit and the... Um, and the glory in some ways because it is the best encapsulation, uh, simple encapsulation of the gospel and why God did it. Um, and yet, this, this verse, everybody knows. Uh, in fact, my daughter who's, who's uh, six, this was her memory verse at, at her school this week. So uh, she, she's learning it as well. It's just ten words in the English. Uh, in the Hebrew, it's only seven. H had a more efficient system of, of writing things out. 
which is really significant. There's some commentators that point out that Moses was this literary genius and the seven words are going to correspond with the seven days that are about to unfold and just sort of the, the beauty of, of what he's trying to say. Some important symbolism with Sabbath and rest are going to show up next week. But, um, but here it is, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Um, and, and what I want you to see right from the start is this is very densely theological. So right from the first moment, Moses is offering the Israelites, to whom he was writing, a profound glimpse of who God is, right? Like he is very clearly uh, making God the center of this, this sentence. God is the subject of this sentence. And as you go forth into the first chapter of Genesis, uh, that name, Elohim, is going to show up 35 different times. God is the centerpiece of, of everything that's happening right from the start, which is totally fitting because truly, when you study the Bible in full, if you do it faithfully, what you're going to notice is the Bible is ultimately a book about God. Like It, it is not, <clears throat> first and foremost, about us. There's absolutely a lot of things for us to learn about ourselves, about each other, about our, our nature. Uh, there's, there's great wisdom for life, good practical uh, things given for how we, should, uh, how, how we should navigate the complexities of life. However, most of all, before anything else, the Bible is about God. It is God's revelation of Himself and His nature to His creation. You know, God did not have to speak. He did not have to reveal Himself. In fact, if you, uh, the deists of the earth believe that God doesn't reveal Himself, that, that He just created the world and then He stands far off, unknowable, unapproachable. Um, and that's how it would be if God never revealed Himself. But God chose to Moses and to His creation to reveal that the world didn't just come into uh, existence by, by happenstance, but that He is the Creator behind it all. The Bible is God's revelation of Himself, meant to give us a clear picture of who God is. And right here from the very first verse, that's becoming evident. Moses driving home that God's supposed to be the center of our view. He's the, he's the one we're thinking about, looking about, learning about when we, when we get to uh, the text of Scripture. So that being true, what I want to do this morning is organize our time uh, to sort of highlight what I see as five big attributes of God that are on display uh, in, this, in this one simple verse. Uh, I think there's, there's five characteristics of his nature that are clearly seen and worthy of our attention. I think, I think Moses is driving these home in the hearts of his hearers and, and wants us to see them as well um, so that we can understand who God is. So here we go, uh, five of them uh, on your note sheet there. You can fill in the blanks on the, on the back of it. But uh, uh, number one, God is eternal. God is eternal. He exists outside of time. He transcends our temporal reality. Uh, and as an eternal God, he, uh, he has existed forever. He will exist for, forever. Uh, and I see this on display right there in the opening words as Moses ascribes creation as happening in the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, which means clearly this universe that we live in, that we stand in, you know, he says the heavens and the earth. So that's everything. That, that's a, a literary feature to the highest of the highs and the lowest of the, the lows and everything in between. God's created the whole cosmos, the whole universe, and he did that in the beginning. But clearly before that beginning, before time began, before space began, before reality began, there was God standing outside of time as the eternal God. So before the beginning was God. Now, this pushes our minds to like the limits of what we're able to comprehend. If you, are, if you have children and you've tried to talk about like how the earth was created and they probably immediately ask, well, who created God? Well, God wasn't created. What? When was God beginning? Well, God doesn't have a beginning. I mean, the infinitude is actually not something that our human minds can comprehend. 
it's literally impossible to comprehend. Um, and, and that's what Moses is pointing out right here from the beginning. His infinitude applied to time is his eternality. God is an eternal creature. He's always existed. He has no beginning. Uh, he will never have an end. He never was and he won't will be. He just is. That, and again, we can't comprehend this, but he stands outside of time. It's not just that he coexists with us on this plane of time that we exist in. He is right now, and he is simultaneously 10 years from now. He stands outside of it all. He can enter any of it. He can commune with his people on, on the plane where we live in time, but he doesn't live in time. He's eternal. You know, this is, this is what uh, he's getting at when God reveals his personal name, Yahweh, to Moses at the burning bush. And this doesn't happen until the Exodus, uh, when, when Moses sees the burning bush. But Moses asks, who shall I say sent you when I go to free these people from Pharaoh? And he says, I, I am that I am. Yahweh, it's the, it's the Hebrew word, that's how we think it's pronounced. We actually don't know because the uh, Israelites considered this name so sacred that they would not write it down. They only wrote down the consonants. They never wrote down the vowels. So, so we know it's, uh, you know, Y-H-W-H is, is the English phonetic equivalent. But um, it could be J. The, the Y and the J in Hebrew are, are equivalent. But uh, we, we say Yahweh. We really don't know what it is, though. But this was, uh, it, it's a definitionally, in its, in its sense, it means I am. Uh, I, I, I always am. I am that I am. I, I'm the ising one. Of all of creation, we're all... Everything that exists is dependent upon God, but He is the one, one thing that actually exists. You know, nothing created Him, and, and everything stands upon Him. So uh, that's who God is. He's an eternal God. Uh, and actually, Jesus references this in, in John chapter 8. This is interesting. If you want to get, Write this down if you want to study this later. We don't have time to get into it. But uh, in John chapter 8, there's this great moment where the Pharisees are arguing with Jesus. They want to kill him. We've been talking about Pharisees a lot on Sunday, so hopefully you got some context of who they are there. But um, they bring up Abraham, and Jesus and, and them are having this conversation about Abraham, and he makes this comment where he basically alludes that he knows Abraham. Uh, and the Pharisees are like, how do you know Abraham? He was, he was like our father's father's father. This, this isn't possible. And Jesus responds with this incredible statement in John 8.58. He says, truly, truly, which anytime you say truly twice, that's like, this is absolutely true. You know, it's, it's, it's emphasized. Jesus' words, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And, and that sentence, I think, is so helpful for understanding the eternality of God because verbs get tricky with God. You can't use past tense and you can't really use future. He just is. He's the ising one. He stands outside of time. Uh, ho hopefully this might help. One of my favorite theologians, Herman Bavinck, has a great quote in one of his uh, uh, doctrinal books, and, and he says this, The essence of time is not that it is without beginning or end, but that it contains a succession of moments, that it is past, present, or future. For, for this, it follows that time, intrinsic time, is a mode of existence for all created and, and finite beings. Time is the measure of creaturely existence. Time is the measure of motion in the movable object. Hence, in God, there is no time. He is what He is from eternity to eternity. There is in Him no variation, neither shadow that is cast by turning. That's James 1. God is not an eternally becoming being. He is an eternal essence. He is without beginning and end and also without succession of moments. He cannot be measured or counted in His duration. A thousand years are as one day with the Lord. You know, He's just trying to help us understand this concept. But hopefully that's clear. God's eternal. We've got to move on. <laughs> Got four more attributes. Um, second one I want you to see here on display in Genesis 1-1 is that God is sovereign. 
He's sovereign. He has authority. He's the ruler over all creation. He stands as, as sovereign over all. Uh, there's nothing created that he did not create. The entire cosmos are his creation. And as creator, he thus has the right and the authority to rule over his creation as, uh, as the supreme ruler. He has exclusive and unconquerable sovereignty in all the world. Um, and as Moses is telling this sentence to his hearers, the Israelites, this is what's on display. You know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. For us, it's a statement of, of creation and origins. But for the Israelite people who heard this, remember when this is written. Moses is writing this, we presume, as they have been freed from Egypt and they're on their way to the promised land. And where have they come from? Egypt. And what existed in Egypt? We know this from, from history. Polytheism like crazy. They had their pyramids, they had their temples, they had a lot of different gods. They had a sun god and a moon god and, and a, a goddess of the, the Nile River and, and all these different gods they believed in who all ruled over different parts of creation. And Moses said, in the beginning, God created all that. I, I mean, this statement is Moses holding no, no punches whatsoever. He is, he is directly rebuking the polytheism that they had come out of and saying, no, above all of that, before all of that, before any gods that might exist on this plane is the God who created it all. He created the heavens, He created the earth, He created everything, and, uh, and therefore he is, he is sovereign over it all. Um, there's this, this great uh, uh, book I studied in seminary that, that sort of sees, and many scholars agree with this, uh, during the, the exodus from Egypt when uh, the ten plagues are happening, that each one corresponds with a different deity of Egyptian polytheism. So the God of the sun, what does God do in one of the plagues? He, he makes it all go dark. You know, the goddess of the Nile River, what does God do in one of the plagues? He turns the Nile River, which was the life stream and, and the, the ability for, for crops in, in the entire Egyptian um, area, uh, he turns it into blood. You know, just again and again and again, God is, is refuting the polytheism of, of Egypt in the Exodus, and now God is, uh, through Moses, pointing out, no, I'm the sovereign one over all creation, uh, not any of these gods. And he doesn't even, notice, he doesn't even, in that, in that verse, Genesis 1-1, he doesn't, he doesn't do it with all this pomp and circumstance. It's just a simple, calm, majestic declaration of who God is. In the beginning, God created everything. Um, and it, I think it still stands. It's a, it was a great, you know, uh, punch of power uh, against the polytheism of, of the Israelites during that time. But I think it still stands in the same way as a great rebuke of modern uh, theories of, of, of creation. You know, our, our issue today in our society is not polytheism. It's more naturalism and materialism, right? Like people think that this that matter is all that exists, that the, the earth has existed forever and, and, uh, and matter, uh, all, all of the universe has existed forever. And, and uh, it, it has, you know, science, the best that it can offer is the Big Bang Theory. Like uh, uh, this was, I did some deep study on this. If, if you're a nerd, you would have enjoyed my, my time this week. Um, Hubble, the Hubble telescope, that guy was the guy who, who sort of came up with the science behind the Big Bang Theory. He observed uh, through, I think, red wave, uh, light detection. The, the furthest galaxies away from us are moving very quickly away from us. They're, they're, they're moving at a, a high speed. So you can observe in the universe, when you use telescopic science, you can observe that the universe is expanding. Everything seems to be moving very rapidly outward. Um, so science, you know, the best they have to offer is that if you go back in time, what happens? It all comes inward and that what first existed was this what? This tiny little dot of 
very dense matter, all the matter of the entire universe compressed into a little little fist-sized ball um, that then exploded into, you know, this, this uh, primordial explosion 14 billion years ago is what created the universe as we know it. That's what science can answer as they look at the universe. Um, but no matter what, science can't look before that. Right? They don't know how that ball came into existence, and they don't know how that ball started exploding into the ordered world that we see today. I'm not saying their theory makes any sense at all. I'm just saying that's their theory. But here, even with their theory, here stands Genesis 1-1 with an explanation of how it all began. In fact, this is so interesting. I was, one of the commentaries I read pointed this out. Uh, Robert Jastraw, he was the director of the NASA Goddard Institute during the 60s and 70s as Big Bang Theory was being written and sort of espoused. And he made a very public comment about how frustrating the Big Bang Theory was for him as a scientist. And, and I've got it for you. And I want you to, to see this because this is huge. He says, there's, there's a kind of religion in science. <clears throat> it's the religion of a person who believes there's order and harmony in, in the universe. Every event can be explained in a rational way as the product of some previous event. This is naturalism. This religious faith of the scientist is violated by the discovery that the world had a beginning, Big Bang, under the theories in which the known laws of physics are not valid, and as a product of forces or circumstances we cannot discover. At this moment, it seems that though science will never be able to raise the curtain on the mystery of creation. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance, and he is about to conquer the highest peak, and as he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. <laughs> How great is that? And his point is... What we all know, that science just doesn't give the answers to our origin. And here comes Moses with this revelation from God. In the beginning, God created it all. And, and I, don't, I don't argue that that's not a, a, a statement you have to take by faith. We can't go measure that out and, and reason that out with science. But what I am saying is it stands with, with simplicity as a beautiful explanation of how everything came to be. And it points to God's sovereignty as the creator of it all. So... God's sovereignty is the one I want you to see there. Um, i got to move faster here. God's omnipotent, third one here. This is similar to sovereignty, but it has a nuanced distinction I want you to see. You know, sovereignty speaks to authority over creation. Omnipotence is talking about the power to create. So authority is sort of the, the right to rule. Uh, omnipotence is, is referring to... Uh, is the power to rule. Um, and it's God's power that gives him his sovereignty, his, his omnipotence, but they are distinct. Um, and you see this here in the, in the verb create. In the beginning, God created. It's the Hebrew word bara. It's uh, the key to what I'm, I'm trying to get at here. It's a very unique word. It appears 48 times in the Old Testament. And never, not even once of those 48 times, is it ascribed to human activity. This is a verb that always applies to God, um, and it's describing a type of creating that only God does, an expression of His omnipotence, His ability to bring with complete effortlessness, and we're going to see this as, as uh, chapter 1 unfolds, he, he speaks and all this stuff happens. With complete effortlessness, with unlimited power, out of nothing, He's able to make everything. I mean, this is God's omnipotence on display. He created the heavens and the earth Himself with, with ease. Humans can create. You know, we created in the image of God have the ability to create as well. But, uh, you know, our best creating as mankind is nothing but recreating what God's already created. Right? Like this is, uh, this is Michelangelo's Pieta. It's one of the most famous statues in the world. 
He carved this when he was 23 years old, uh, which is unthinkable. I mean, just imagine our world today. If video games didn't exist for kids, they might be carving things like this when they turn 23. I doubt there's a person on the planet that could actually do this today, and I'm very concerned about what's going on in our society as, as we don't um, unleash children into the wild bounds of imagination and creativity and curiosity because we're always keeping them entertained before screens. But if uh, this, this he, he made when he was 23, it was his first major sculpture. Look at this, um, look at the face. I mean, look at the, the cloth and like the wrinkles of the, cr- I mean, I don't even know how you do this. But as wonderful of, of a creation as this is, it's, it's just recreation of marble, which God created. God ordered the electrons and the protons and the neutrons and the, the subatomic quirks in such a way that that could exist. I mean, God created gravity. He created uh, orbits. He created the sun and light. He, he placed this big rock that we're standing on right now at just the right distance so that the, the heat from the sun can, cannot burn us up or make us too cold. Uh, he created you know, carbon dioxide, and then he created plants to turn that into oxygen, and then he created us to turn it back into car- carbon dioxide. I mean, it's, the earth, scientifically, is such an incredible balance that's so you know, uh, unbelievable that it exists. And we're just one planet out of nine, or if you don't want to count Pluto like some scientists today, maybe we're just eight planets, swirling around our tiny little star, which, you know, is enormous uh, uh, to our perspective. But it's just a tiny, one tiny, mild, small star in our galaxy, which has 100, they estimate 100 to 400 billion stars in the Milky Way. That's us. And this is one of 2,000 billion galaxies that we can observe with our best telescopes. And God just made all of that. Like our best power can do this, but, but God's power did this. I mean, this is, this is James Webb, the, if you're a nerd. The James Webb, Webb Telescope is the newest telescope. It's, it's pushing the bounds of what we can know. And this is, a, this is a wide view. It's not zoomed in too much as it's trying to capture as many stars as possible. If you zoom in here, all that black space, when you zoom in, there's no black space whatsoever. I mean, it's just stars further away. It's just the more you zoom in, the more you see. These are a few of my favorite. Um, these are pictures. These are not like CGI renderings. Um, this is a picture when they zoom in on one little nebula that exists out there. You know, this is, uh, this is another picture that exists with a little clear spot in the nebula where you can see galaxies on the other side. I mean, it's just, it's just unthinkable. And God created all that out of nothing. You know, his, his power is something that's unmeasurable. We can measure... Uh, you know, force and power on this earth. We know, you know, how to measure pounds of pressure and, and, and pounds of force, but we, we don't know how to measure God's power. It's, it's so big, it's not even measurable. It's, it's omnipotence. That's what I'm trying to, to point out here. God, Moses is showing us that right from the start, just how big God is. And this would have been, I know we need telescopes to see all this. The Israelites, they didn't have light pollution. They could just look up at night. I mean, they didn't get to see this, but they... If you've ever been to a foreign country or way out west where there's no lights and you've seen a picture of the sky unpolluted with, with other light, it's unreal. And that's what Moses is getting at. As they're walking through the desert, they would have seen this. Um, two more, real fast. God is imminent. Um, he's not just high above and transcendent far beyond us with all this omnipotence and sovereignty. He's also the creator God who's come near to his creation by creating. Um, what I mean here is that, that God chose to create. He chose to reveal himself. He chose to make himself known. We talked about this at the beginning. He didn't have to. You know, he didn't, he didn't have to step into his creation and reveal himself. But God isn't just high and lofty as the transcendent sovereign ruler of the universe. He's also an eminent God who reveals himself to his creation. 
Um, eminence is a, is a beautiful attribute of God, and it's the attribute of His grace. If He didn't choose to intervene in our lives and to come near to us and, and make Himself known, how could we ever love Him? How could we ever follow Him? How could we ever obey? It's His eminence that makes all that possible. Uh, and number five, last one here, um, God is triune. Uh, one last little glimpse that I want you to see of God that's on display here. It's not explicit, it's just a tiny little glimpse, is, um, is the, the plurality of God, which we come to see in the rest of the Bible, is a trinity. Um, he is triune. I don't think Moses had, a, had the full concept of the trinity in his mind. Maybe God had revealed that to him, but he didn't write it down very clearly. Um, so I, I don't think he fully understood it. But nonetheless, we see a glimpse of it right here in the name of God, Elohim. It's a plural form of, of that subject. Um, and yet it's used with a singular form of the verb, create. So the, the subject and the verb don't agree, uh, breaking grammar rules, even in Hebrew, and yet it's there as a small little glimpse of the plurality and singularity of God, the triune nature of His, of his being. Um, you're going to see that even more next week, but I didn't want to um, miss it here, another attribute on display. So all that being true, I know it's uh, 6.59 and 20 seconds. Um, what does this mean for us? What effect should this have on us? Uh, if you need to leave right at 7, feel free. There's doors on either side. I'm going to steal two extra minutes from you. Um, here's the effect it should have on us. Romans 1, I know you got into this on day one, and I think it's the perfect place. Um, Paul makes a really beautiful point here, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that God's created order does something to our souls. It reveals something invisible to our souls that we see clearly even though it's invisible, and it's those two first words, eternal power and divine nature. His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen in the things that have been made so that we are without excuse is what that means. Like when you see the stars, when you see, when the Israelites saw the night sky, when you see a sunset, when you go climb a mountain, you are catching, your soul is catching a glimpse of God. He has displayed His power in such an incredible way that it's inescapable. In creation. That's, that's what he's doing in Genesis 1-1 when he does this creation work. And there's so many Psalms, he studied a lot of them this week, that, that, that point out this effect that it has on us of revealing the nature of God. And there's two responses we should have in light of that. And, and he gives them there. Although they knew God, they, they should have known God. And they did know God. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. So there's something about creation that should create two things in us. And it's these two words, your last fill in the blanks there, honor and thanksgiving towards God. You could also fill those in as worship and obedience. I mean, I think that's what honor is obedience, thanksgiving is worship. I mean, our hearts should exalt when we see the bigness of God. It is man's sinful wickedness that turns us away from looking at God that closely, that makes us want to go look at His creation and order our lives around creation rather than the Creator. And yet God keeps displaying Himself to pull our hearts back into worship that will drive obedience. And here's, here's the last point I'll make, and I'm stealing this from John Piper, but he makes this great point in his sermon that when, God, when we see God as He is, when we catch a glimpse of His nature, He becomes the sun in our little solar system called life. And our life falls into its proper gravitational orbit around Him. That the bigness of God sets us in our rightful place, seeing ourselves as small, seeing Him as the, the center of the universe, the reason that we were created, the reason that we should exist. And I promise you, every disorder of our lives, every disorder of your kid's life, every disorder of your wife's life, every disorder of your coworkers' lives, they're all related to not seeing God as He is, to suppressing and turning away from the bigness and the grandiosity of God, and, and thus living their lives as if they're at the center. 
When God's at the center, when, when our lives revolve around Him and fall into their natural and healthy gravitational plane, everything else falls into place too. But sin, at its essence, is us replacing God at the center. So right from the start, Moses is making sure we put the right thing at the center, which is God himself. And I, I hope, I know, I wanted to get into more things that we as men are, are inclined to put in the center of our lives rather than God. Um, we don't have time for that, but I hope you will inspect your heart. And I hope you will try to find the things that you lean on that aren't God, and you'll replace them because when he's at the center, he fixes everything else. We're going to see that more as we continue. All right, I'm not even going to pray. We've prayed enough. You're dismissed. It is 7.02 and 43 seconds. We'll see you next week.